the coast is never clear Answers always beyond our reach And though it's not my way, won't you help me try? Let's make jam and rap gives us a pitch If it's true, I don't mind There's a million other things that keep me up at night Maybe it's not quite right Hello and welcome to episode 1371 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast brought to you by Fangraphs and our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs and I am joined by Ben Limberg of The Ringer. Hello, Ben. Hello. How are you? Doing well. I just got a tweet from my publisher who sent a picture of the book, which exists. The <gasps> finished hard copy book is in her hands and will soon be in mine and will soon be in all of yours if you'd like it to be. So that's very exciting. Congratulations. That's yeah, wonderful. Thanks. Comes out of a month from Saturday. So yeah. go get your pre-orders in, people. The MVP machine, it's real. Yeah, the pre-orders no. matter. They're important. Mm-hmm. So we have a guest today, also pretty important and mm-hmm. exciting. We are talking to Jeopardy James. Jeopardy James Holtzauer will be our guest later on this episode. And he, of course, has been dominating Jeopardy. And uh, he is also a big baseball fan and a sabermetrics person and apparently a reader of your chats at Fangrass. <laughs> so, I feel very intimidated. Yeah. Uh. So uh, he's going to talk to us about his background in baseball and how he got into this stuff. He was a, a Bill James person. And about his strategy and about the backlash to his success, which mirrors the the backlash to sabermetrics in baseball in a lot of ways. And if you haven't read about his strategy, basically he is just betting very aggressively. He is choosing daily doubles very well. He is building up big early leads and then wagering lots of money and not just winning, but blowing everyone away. He is now second behind Ken Jennings in all-time winnings and also in consecutive wins and will be catching up very quickly at his current pace. So it has been quite impressive. Yeah. Fun conversation. It was nice to talk to him. Very strange Mm -hmm. to hear that other people read my chats, but uh, (laughs) we didn't dwell on that. Yep. (laughs) I read your chats, but I've never been on Jeopardy. So That's true. Yeah. I bet you do well on Jeopardy. I don't know. I there are times when I like trivia, but mostly I don't like trivia because it just it makes me feel ignorant because Even if I do get some right, which happens sometimes, and then I feel good, but ultimately I get some wrong, and then I just feel bad about all the stuff I don't know, which, uh, I mean, you know, I know I I don't know a lot of things, and it's nice not to know things because then you can learn them. But ultimately, I come away from every attempt at trivia just feeling bad about myself, so... (laughs) I like trivia, but my family has barred me from playing uh, Trivial Pursuit because I was uh-huh. a bad sport one time, but I was oh, a really no. bad sport, so I deserved it. I earned oh, no. I earned my ban. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> uh, there was a, a question on yurts, and I may have danced around the room when I got it right, and <laughs> it was just, you know, it was it was poor form. Uh, it was definitely not form that we've ever seen on Jeopardy. They're they're. <laughs> Uh, quite civil with one another, uh, but I was I was punished and I deserved to be. So that was the end of my trivial <laughs> pursuit days. My mom also behaved quite badly because we were playing in teams, so we were co-banned. Uh, okay. uh, so you know it happens. Yeah, did you get plunked the next time you played? Just... <laughs> yeah, one of the little wedges just right between the eyes. <laughs> So uh, a bit of baseball banter. First thing I should mention is that there was a true win in baseball that happened just this week. This is Mm -hmm. the latest in a long line of weird and unlikely things that are discussed on this podcast, and then they actually happen in baseball. So I think it was episode 1358 a few weeks ago. Sam and I answered a question from listener and Patreon supporter Russell Goldstein, who has this stat that he and his friends came up with, the true win, which is awarded to a pitcher who pitches a complete game and he is directly responsible for creating more runs than he allows. So basically he hits a homer and he pitches a shutout or he hits two homers and it gives up one run. He hits more homers himself than he allows the other team to score. And that's what Noah Syndergaard did on Thursday. And it was pretty cool to see just coming on the heels of that conversation because it had been a couple years since this had happened. Noah Syndergaard had been the last guy to do it and it had been a couple years before him. And this is a very rare feat that is getting rarer all the time. Sam actually wrote about it very quickly after that started. I think he said it's happened 208 times since 1908, which is rarer than a no-hitter. 
Of course, it can't really happen in the AL anymore since the DH, but even so, it is really rare, and it's really impressive, and Syndergaard was great, and he did it in 104 pitches. That's the the big risk. Not only are pitchers terrible at hitting now, but they rarely pitch complete games, and so to do both of those things in one start is very unlikely, and it happened. Yeah, and when when Jay Jaffe wrote about it for Fangraphs today, he you know he uh, organized it around a slightly different metric. But this had not happened in terms of a pitcher um, pitching a shutout and homering for the game's only run. Which of right. course, like if it's a shutout, it's like well, it might not be the game's only run, but well, uh, it had not happened since uh, Bob Welch did it on June seventeenth, nineteen eighty-three. And this is one of those cool things that just makes it more fun to watch the game. Like Sam tweeted about this, I don't know, in the fifth inning or something. And so I was following it, as yeah. was he. And uh, it made it a lot more fun because like every pitch is a nail biter because not only could the other team score and ruin it, but just like throwing too many pitches can get you taken out of a game. So there are just so many ways to lose it. And as he pointed out, like you never know when you might just see the last true win. We just might right. not see any anymore. He proposed kind of co-naming it the Bob Gibson because Bob Gibson did it six times, which is the most ever. And these days it's like once every two years and probably getting rarer. So kind of cool that it happened so shortly after we discussed it. Yeah, very cool. It added it added tremendous stakes to that game. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it was good that there were stakes because I had been lulled into a sense of security and happiness after seeing that Syndergaard had ditched the beard and the man bun. Yeah, but then I had, down. Yeah, it, it, you know, it, it amped them back up again because I wasn't worried about his hair. So it's good. Yeah. Speaking of low pitch counts, Kyle Hendricks just threw a, a complete game shutout in 81 pitches. Yeah, that, that is, seems like not a lot of pitches. <laughs> that is, I mean, that's like a Maddox minus 19. That is amazing. Wow. I'm yeah. going to have to look up. Just well, Yeah, this was, uh, I guess, Aaron Cook did it to beat the Mariners naturally sure. in uh, 81 pitches in 2012. True. So. That was the last time that it happened, and it was the eighth nine-inning shutout with 81 or fewer pitches since 1988 when they started keeping track of pitch counts. So that's pretty impressive. Yeah, that's that's great. I saw not a single pitch of that game, but I look forward to going back and, and uh, checking some of those out. Yeah. Should we talk about the AL Central? Yeah, I guess we should. As I remarked on our our th- our three co-host pod, uh, you know, I went away for the weekend, and when I came back, the Twins were atop uh, the Central, and that was surprising to me. And mm-hmm. then uh, things got much worse for Cleveland because now yes. Corey Kluber is hurt and will be out for. I mean, I don't know that we have had a, an update on the exact timeline, but at least a month for the uh, fracture in his arm to. Uh, to heal. So this is things are getting a little bit spicy in the central, which yeah. is which is great because we thought that division was going to be boring in a profound way before the season started. So right. Yeah, Kluber is evidently not having surgery, but he's going to be out for a while while that heals. And I'm just looking at the Fangraphs playoff odds yep. comparing to the preseason odds and looking at the odds of making the division series. So Cleveland is now down 17.1% and the Twins are up about 31%, which is, I think only the Rays are up more relative to preseason. So yeah, Twins are fun. Your your draft pick of them in the fun team draft is is looking great. Not only are they fun, but they're apparently pretty good and they sort of like stop striking out and yet they're hit for more power. And uh, the staff is a little bit better. They do strike out some guys now. And it's just kind of a fun, exciting team with like Williams Estadio and Byron Buxton and Nelson Cruz and people who are fun to watch play baseball. So, yeah, this is cool. Yeah. The only teams in baseball with more wins than the Twins are the Dodgers, the Rays, sure, (laughs) and the Cardinals. Uh, So that seems pretty great. They are uh, outperforming their Pythag and their base runs record by by a little bit, but only by two wins. It's not like a crazy amount. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's not like they have a negative run differential or anything like that. So yeah, they're they're quite fun. I'm excited for it to be a little bit more of a race. I wish that it were coming under different circumstances for Cleveland because uh, mm-hmm. it is a bummer to, you know, Kluber hasn't been quite right this season anyhow, but it is a bummer to lose him for so long. 
maybe their bats will pick up and then um, it'll be it'll be a little more fun again because we'll get good Lindor and perhaps Ramirez will rebound. Could be yeah. true. Yeah. So the Rays are up almost 40% their odds of making the LDS. The Twins are up about 30% and then the Cardinals are up 20%. And those are the only really big jumps or double digit jumps. But that's all exciting. And, and I'm glad there is a race in the Central at least. Like I, yeah. I feel sorry for... Cleveland fans, I'd like to see them get to win a World Series someday. On the other hand, there's like obviously the Cleveland ownership just very much took the winter off, and yeah. uh, which was at the time understandable in the sense that it looked like they were so likely to win the division. I think coming into the season, they had the highest division odds, even though they did a whole lot I of think nothing that that's right. and yes. spent most of the offseason talking about trading guys, although they they didn't end up moving Kluber or Bauer, but they were clearly considering it. And it seemed like they were very much trying to cut costs, and that is just some sort of cheapness on their part, coupled with not so great attendance and coupled with, I guess, a false sense of security about just how competitive they had to be and how aggressive they had to be. And it was kind of one of these situations where we thought, like, you know, it seems like they kind of have that locked up, but if enough goes wrong and enough goes right for the twins and so far that's all happening but it's pretty early yet yeah it is it is early yet but you we were able to sort of see our way to this man the rays have the best run differential in baseball yeah that's wild good job mm-hmm. jeff we're gonna attribute it all to him <laughs> yep. it's all his doing yeah yeah i think that we all thought that there was you know as soon as lindor went down in spring we all i think started to grapple with the possibility that that they would need to do something um, more substantial than they have uh, to really lock up and and sort of put their boot on the next. That's a terrible analogy. I hate that analogy. I don't know why I brought that one up. But anyway, to seal it up, they were going to – they could have – you know, just really put it away early and they decided not to and leaving the door open like that was something we all thought was a little bit weird and risky. And um, and now it is potentially coming back to bite them, although obviously there's a tremendous amount more baseball to be played. Is it possible that the Marlins have only won nine baseball games? That seems high to me. <laughs> wow. This has been a, a, a feature of podcasts for me lately where I will be talking to someone and so I have our leaderboards up or I have, you know, our playoff projections and then I get distracted by um, an aberrant fact and you know last time it was trey mancini and now it's the marlins because <laughs> that's rough yeah nine and 21 not so great not so great not the worst run differential in baseball though go oh. orioles <laughs> <laughs> oh, the oh, orioles terrible. home run allowance pace right now is really extraordinary it's, it's one of the wildest things i've ever seen <laughs> <laughs> they're on pace to joshian just wrote about this so i was looking at the numbers in his newsletter and uh they're on pace for 374 home runs oh allowed they've only allowed i think one since tuesday so the pace has actually slowed a little bit well that's good this is like oh man and this is like assuming they don't trade any good pitchers that they have if they have any or like lose any to injury along the way this is quite grim it's quite grim Partly the run environment, but not really. They just right. they allowed the most home runs in a baseball month by a lot, by 16. <laughs> 16. <laughs> they allowed 73 dingers in April, and including March, I guess, which uh, previous record was the A's in 1964, and May was 57. So they blew that away. So they allowed more home runs than Bellinger and Yelich, the current home <laughs> run leaders, have hit each. Not oh, yes. together, but each. Mm-hmm. Mm, seems bad. Uh, well, just to go back to Cleveland for a hot minute, they get to uh, play the Seattle Mariners for a three-game set. And so, uh, you know, they might come away feeling a little bit better because Mariners have been dreadful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they have been quite poor over the last seven days. So they, they might get a, a bit of a reprieve. The Mariners have been outscored 35-7 to 7 in their last three games. That seems pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. not great. No. One other thing, or maybe two other things. It, this seems to be like the the Tyler Glasnow week. Yeah, there was a, <laughs> a Tyler Glasnow post at Fangraphs, and Michael Bauman wrote about Glasnow at, at the Ringer. And uh, I think everyone's kind of paying lots of attention to Glasnow, which they were coming into the season because he was a very popular breakout type pick because he had been pretty good in in certain ways after the Rays traded for him last year. 
And man, that trade is just looking like uh, we're like 10 months or so after that trade, the, the Chris Archer for Austin Meadows and, and Tyler Glasnow and, and others trade. And that is looking like an all-timer for the race right now, which uh, it kind of did at the time. But this is like, uh, this is just, uh, I mean, Archer is, is hurt right now, but before he was hurt was not pitching particularly great anyway. Yeah. And uh, he's kind of been on a downward trend for a while now. And Glasnow seems to be like a frontline starter. And then Meadows is also on the IL now, but he was hitting like really incredibly well before he got hurt too. So gosh, that that trade, that is uh, regrettable for Pirates. Yeah, it does not not appear good (laughs) because Austin Meadows was, was, uh, was worth a win before he got hurt. Right, mm-hmm. he had yep. uh, he has a one ninety one WRC plus. <laughs> yep, <laughs> it's pretty good. It's pretty good. Yeah, that'll, that'll play. <laughs> and and Glasnow's like uh, he was obviously a highly touted prospect, and he had good stuff. And maybe this would have happened anyway. I don't know, but he's made some tweaks. And I think David Lorela just wrote about him too, right? There've been yeah. multiple <laughs> fan yeah. press posts about Glasnow recently. So. This is like partly a, a player development success, I guess. Like he he has a, a couple different types of fastballs, and so he has what he's like throwing a, a cutter more. He's throwing in the zone more. I haven't consumed all of the Glasnow content yet to see what exactly he's doing differently. But uh, do you have you edited these pieces enough to to know? I have, but I am going to need a moment for the data to load. But I think that while I am stalling on that score, I am going to say that I. Mean I mean, like, obviously, he is different. Tyler Glasnow is different than Paxton because, you know, he's righty and Paxton's lefty. But I, I think that what all of these pieces have pointed out, and it is true, is that, like, the the additional just strike throwing is really what's going to – what's seemed to have made the difference. And then that has been refined even further uh, this year. And uh, I think that one of the things that Ben was struck by – different Ben. There are too many Bens. We're going to start renaming you because yeah. I don't want to confuse people <laughs> with all the Bens. I think that, you know, one thing that one thing that he noted, for example, is that um, his he's having greater success on on first pitches in terms of um, finding the zone. Uh, so that seems to be encouraging, and he is mixing these pitches very effectively. And so, you know, I think that the combination of that of that fastball and the variety of fastballs paired with his breaking stuff is just like it's just really it's just really great. And he's throwing mm-hmm. strikes. So yeah. It's funny how the reputation of the Pirates has sort of switched when it comes to making players better because it was just a few years ago that Ray Searage was a miracle worker and I remember doing podcasts at the time about like how much do we believe that because sometimes you see coaches who just sort of have a fleeting reputation for being brilliant and then that reputation goes away for whatever reason. I don't know whether it's that they weren't actually that great in the first place and they just got sort of lucky or whether they were able to reach a certain group of players and then new players come along and they're not as receptive for whatever reason. Or maybe they have one weird trick that they advise players to do to be good at baseball and then the game changes and then that weird trick doesn't work anymore, which (laughs) – yeah. It sort of seems like we're we're at that point with the Pirates where Travis wrote a whole book about the things right. that they did and their pitching approach and inside fastballs and sinkers and get grounders and then shift and do good framing. And, you know, some of that was other teams catching up. And then some of it, it seemed like, I don't know, maybe they fell in love a little bit with that strategy because suddenly you get like, Garrett Cole, who is not flourishing under that system, and then he goes to Houston, and suddenly he's great, and Glasno now, and it just seems like you're not seeing those success stories of people who go to the Pirates anymore. seems like there are more of people who leave the Pirates. Well, and I wonder how much, I always wonder how much like being known for one, embracing one saber concept, like you said, kind of enhances our, or not enhances, but makes us assume that there's more going on with another. Like we we looked at them and we're like, well, they're really in on pitch framing and we like pitch framing and think it's super smart and cool. So there must be a lot to those sort of overall pitching strategy. And it 
will probably be good and adaptable going forward because in this way, the organization is proving itself to be progressive. And uh, if they're embracing the one thing, surely they're thinking critically about the other. And I just, I think you're right that it doesn't appear that that was either, it either didn't um, continue to adapt at the rate that it needed to, or was perhaps too one size fits all for the pitchers that they were actually getting. So yeah, it doesn't look great. <laughs> Unlike Tyler Glasnow, who looks fantastic. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, whenever you have sort of a one-size-fits-all organizational philosophy, it seems like you're in danger of guys who don't fit into that so well just being left out a little bit. And someone like Garrett Cole, who has this explosive fastball and this great breaking stuff, and you're telling him to throw lots of sinkers, it's like, you know, that might work well for Ivan Nova or, or other guys, but maybe that's not the best way to unlock Garrett Cole. Right. So talk to him for the book, or Travis did, and he was talking about how when he went to Houston, he sat down with the people there and he immediately heard things that he never heard in Pittsburgh about how he should pitch and what his best pitches were. And so there are coaches who are in the game for a long time and are very respected, but it's just really hard to find guys on the scrap heap and turn them into productive players year after year after year, because if you're doing something really smart, then other people are going to see what you're doing. And those players are going to take what they learn to other places and people will mimic what you're doing. And then maybe other teams will copy the framing and the shifting and, you know, their launch angles will change and player swings will change. And suddenly you don't want to throw sinkers. You want to throw sliders and everything's different and you can't really reinvent yourself. So it's, it's just, it's hard to be better than the other baseball teams for a long time. It's so interesting that I, like two of the most analytically inclined organizations that we can think of when you think about their approach to player dev, I just wonder how it's going to, when we're going to see that problem emerge for like a Houston or yeah. uh, for the Dodgers, right? Because Houston's approach to pitcher player development, a lot of those guys look very, very similar in terms of what they're throwing and how they're throwing it. And when you look at Dodgers hitters coming up through the system, there's there's a lot of the same right? You have guys who are sort of approaching things the same way. There's a lot of swing and miss in the profile. And so I know this has been something that like Eric and Kylie have thought a lot about as they've gone through and ranked systems and just thought about player dev. Do you end up with a biodiversity problem, basically, <laughs> where yeah. all of the guys look the same and either some guys can't adapt or teams kind of know what you're going to do because you have the, you're so heavily committed to this one profile. And, you know, things have worked out pretty okay for for the Astros and the Dodgers. Uh, mm -hmm. But I, I do wonder, you do wonder, because like you look at Pittsburgh and it's like, well, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Didn't go so well. <laughs> yeah. It's it's hard for baseball teams to dominate baseball the way that James Holtzauer is dominating Jeopardy because he is one person and he seems to have found this strategy that is really working well right now. And other people could copy it, but it's, as we're going to talk to him about, it, it's partly dependent on just how good he is at implementing it and on knowing the facts of everything. Right. It's just harder in baseball where if you come up with some smart idea, then the players find out about it and the players change teams or executives change teams and you can pick up some of this stuff with public data. So it's just hard to sustain that sort of advantage, but it's impressive while it lasts. So... The last thing I wanted to mention, there's been some more writing and speculating about the baseball and about dingers. There was some writing this week in which David Price was quoted and said, come on, just tell us. We all see it. Just come clean and say it <laughs> about the baseball being different. And it is funny how you you see pitchers talk about this so much more than hitters. Yeah. It's like they all know, but yeah. it's the pitchers who complain about this, even though, I mean, it does affect some pitchers disproportionately, but it, it affects all of them in a way so that like if all the pitchers are given up more dingers, then you're not going to get like paid less probably relative to other pitchers because everyone's given up these dingers, but I guess no one likes to stand on a major league mound with everyone watching and give up long home runs even if it it doesn't affect you know their performance relative to their peers or their earning power that much but anyway price said that and rob manfred has changed his tune a little bit i guess he uh he acknowledged that the ball is responsible or partly responsible here but 
now he's saying it's a it's like uncontrollable variation in the way the baseballs are made because they're made by hand and it's natural products and it's hard to make them uniform and everything which uh i guess that's progress but like <laughs> would that okay like let's say let's say we believe him that mm-hmm. that's true does yeah. that make you feel better <laughs> that does not make me feel better <laughs> yeah i mean not particularly and if it is just like random variation which to some degree is probably unavoidable he says we're in that range of variation that we don't know how to eliminate when the drag goes down the ball goes further and you're going to have more home runs which is true But if it were just purely random variation, like you would expect that sometimes there'd be juiced balls and sometimes there wouldn't be just juiced balls. It's like clearly like there's some variation, but like the mean has moved and it's moved a lot and consistently now where we've been talking about this since the middle of 2015. So almost four years at this point, the baseball is clearly different. So it's not just variation. I mean, I I get, I get that it could vary from the beginning of 2015 to the end of 2015, but it has stayed at a very high level for the past few years. And if you wanted it not to be at that level, there are things that you could do. So it's, it's, uh, it's better that he's at least like admitting that the ball is, is it, it's part of it here, but it just still seems somewhat disingenuous to, to just be like, well, we've done all we can. I don't know. We're at the mercy of, of this manufacturing process. Yeah, I don't. I think that uh, our impression of it might be a touch different if there weren't such a clear. I mean, first of all, if we didn't have a literal report commissioned by baseball that yeah. told us that this was because the ball was different. But I think that if that change had happened, you know, it's like the frog in boiling water thing. If it had happened slowly over time, maybe you look around and you're like, well, this is just like a change in the way hitters are doing things or, yeah. you know, natural variation. But that there was such a. A stark contrast between pre-All-Star break and post-All-Star break home run rates that mm-hmm. one year. It just, you know, it's like we've talked about. We want people to believe in science and it always feels very, it doesn't make us feel good as human beings when we think someone assumes that we're a little bit dumb and we're <laughs> just going to kind of believe them when what they're saying doesn't sound mm-hmm. super plausible and is in defiance of the evidence. So I think it is better, but at this point, I don't know that there's much he could say out, apart from just admitting like, yeah, we monkeyed with the ball a little bit mm-hmm. that would satisfy people because mm-hmm. we've had this hemming and hawing and dissembling for uh, potential dissembling for so many years now. As you said, it's four years. Yeah. There yeah. are kids who went to college and are ready to graduate from college <laughs> over the course of the ball being different. They've, yeah. they've learned a whole college education's worth of stuff. <laughs> Yeah, I know. There's got to be something that could be done if they wanted something to be done. So they can't want it that bad. But all right. So we will take a quick break and we will buzz in James Holtzauer to talk about sabermetrics and Jeopardy. Where did I go? What am I doing? What time is it? Have I always been filled with questions? Where's the show tonight? Who's on? Did I see them play in Houston? What year was that? What day is it? Why do I lean on good intentions? What are intentions? Las Vegas, Nevada, James Holtzhauer. Daily double. Window maximum, please. Yeah. What is anemia? Anemia is right. Daily double lead over Samir. All of it? Okay. What is Bangkok? What is Kyoto? What is Kyrgyzstan? What is Curiosity? What is Dead Cat? Answer there. The Daily Double. 4,400 off the one-day record, James. Okay, I'll try. Uh, And how much did you raise? 38,314. A new one-day record. 110,914. 
In December 2015, Alex Trebek read this clue on Jeopardy. This word for the science of baseball analytics comes from the name of a research society. He was greeted by blank stares and silence. Eventually, he said, that would be sabermetrics. Yeah, it's an unusual word. Our guest today, James Holtzauer, would have no trouble with that question. Not that he has much trouble with any other questions. James, there will not be any prize money at the end of this episode, but thank you for joining us anyway. Hi, Ben. I remember that uh, episode. I was uh, excited. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, we've been following your success with interest, as has the rest of the country, but we got even more interested this week because in response to a very cranky column about how you're ruining Jeopardy, one of many out there, you tweeted tongue-in-cheek that you had always dreamed of working in an MLB front office and ruining baseball. You've since explained a little bit about your baseball background to Mark Craig of The Athletic, but for people who haven't read that piece, which we will link to, could you explain a little bit about how baseball became a gateway to what you're doing now? Well, it's kind of a lifelong love affair. You know, when I would come home from school, Cubs games were what was on TV, and well, Cubs games and Jeopardy, so that informed my whole life right there. Uh, I was always the kid who was really into the stats that flashed on the bottom of the screen. You know, back then they only had the... Uh, betting average home runs and RBIs, but even that, I wanted to collect every baseball card in the sets. You know, in the days before baseball reference and fan drafts were around, you had to kind of go into Excel and input everyone's stats yourself and try to run some formulas on them, see who the real MVP was. So that was me. Fast forward to about age 13, I remember telling my dad that I wish there were a stock market for sports teams because I would just trade sports teams for a living and uh, clean up on it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it took me eight years to realize that such a thing existed, but that, you know, became who I was. In between, uh, I would play a lot of fantasy baseball and, you know, kind of run my own numbers to try to figure out who's going to win the World Series this year. And, you know, this is the kind of thing I would do for fun anyway. So knowing that I could make some money off of it was just gravy on top. Uh, so, yeah, since age 21, I've been supporting myself, betting sports, just as the only job I have, really. And we talked uh, on an episode to Mitchell Lichtman, who was a a sports better, and he used to clean up betting on baseball, like back in the 80s, 90s, and he has since just given up betting on baseball because it's gotten a lot harder to make money doing that. So did you have or do you have much success betting on baseball specifically? It's definitely harder now than it used to be. I mean, the opportunities are still there, but you're, you know, you've got to be comfortable with having like, I don't know, a 2% edge on your bet instead of an 8% edge that you used to have 15 years ago. Uh, I think back in MGL's day, they would even be higher than that. It was crazy. Um, it took the books quite a while to catch up to the stats revolution in baseball, but they're basically there now. And you, uh, Gotta really be on top of stuff, you know, Mike Trout's not playing. If you can fire in a bet against the Angels, that's honestly just as big a source of edge now as crunching the numbers is for me. So where do you find those edges? What are the uh, sports betting markets that haven't quite uh, caught up to the inefficiencies yet? Well, the big thing is just if you're playing the market itself, uh, you know, it's not the stock exchange. The stock exchange, if you want to buy Google stock, you have to uh, accept whatever price the market is giving you. In sports, there's 13 different sportsbook operators in Nevada, they all have their own odds on the game. And sometimes, you know, either the guy who's managing risk at one place uh, decides he wants to get more money on the other side, you know, maybe they're taking a lot of bets on the Bears, they want to get some Packers money in, or maybe the uh, sportsbook manager just doesn't like the Bears for whatever reason, he gives you an extra half point. And a big source of edge is just making sure you're shopping for the best price you can. Other than that, yeah, in baseball, you know, Crunching your numbers is, of course, very important. Staying on top of that lineup info. I know part of MGM's new deal with baseball is that they want to have exclusive access to that lineup info before anyone else does. I don't think they're going to get this, but uh, it would be interesting to see how that affects the marketplace if they, they do get exclusive insider info like that. So what what was your impression generally that I guess we hadn't really planned on talking about this, but what was your impression of MLB's deal with with MGM? Is this something that you're excited about to see that sort of avenue? uh, I don't know that legitimizes the word I'm comfortable using, but expanded (laughs) in terms of a formal partnership or? I would say that the, the first thing I thought when I read about this was interesting. You know, baseball says they're committed to not wanting to be involved in gambling, but it turns out their price was $15 million or whatever MGM paid them for this uh, partnership. But I think that's overall, uh, more legalization of sports betting is a good direction for the industry. And I'm proud to see that uh, taking place right now, more and more states kind of falling 
So how far did you go in attempting to work in MLB? I would say that based on even your Jeopardy winnings alone, I think you've done better <laughs> pursuing what you pursued <laughs> than uh, than getting an entry-level job in an MLB front office. But what was your hope and uh, who did you apply to or, or what kind of job were you looking for and when? Yeah, I mean, I this was never going to be an avenue to make money. I certainly... Uh, I've been on record saying I would love to work in a front office, but I have to think I would be taking a pretty serious pay cut, not just from Jeopardy, but from gambling in order to do it. So it would just be kind of a passion project for me. I would not say that I gave it my all in the past. You know, I would submit online applications whenever I saw one, but I would never go to the winter meetings or things like that. And so, yeah, I, I would not say I gave the best effort I could have. And I know that Mark tweeted that uh, at least one team has expressed some interest in you now. Would you be interested still in some sort of uh, consultant role, let's say? I think that that would be something I could definitely be interested in. But, you know, I I would like to work remotely if I could. You know, I really love Las Vegas. I, uh, my family's here. My friends are here. And my work is here. You know, I might have to put the gambling on baseball aside if some consultancy thing opens up. I wonder if the Golden Knights analytics department has an opening. It could uh, be perfect, maybe. <laughs> well, historically, coming on this podcast or co-hosting this podcast or writing for Fangraphs has been a really good way to, to yeah. get a, base, a job in baseball. So oh, maybe dear. this will do it. <laughs> I, I do think they probably would make you stop uh, placing bets on actual MLB action <laughs> if you were to work for a team, though. Yeah. Yes. You know, I, I was wondering if front offices have bans on fantasy baseball because the uh, my friends in my keeper league that we've been playing in forever are already starting to call dibs on Vladimir Guerrero Jr. if I have to drop him uh, next year. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, so do you see your strategy right now as analogous to any specific baseball strategies or sabermetric strategies that we've seen? Well, in baseball, but also in, in any sport, is there obviously the response to it has been similar in a lot of ways, but do you look at certain tactics as inspirations? I don't know if I would call it a direct, uh, draw a direct analogy between the two, but I would say, you know, when I came into formulating my Jeopardy strategy, I did not look at what anyone else was doing. I just thought, you know, if I were starting from scratch and I had no idea how to play Jeopardy, what are the ways I could play that would give me an advantage over the typical player? You know, and I think that uh, some of these teams with things like the shifts and uh, prioritizing strikeout pitchers and home run hitters, they're, you know, thinking we don't need to follow tradition. There's no reason that we uh, need to follow maxims like pitching is 75% of the game. Let's figure out how much pitching actually is and work from there. You know, let's figure out where people actually hit their ground balls and position our fielders accordingly. So, you know, not um, catering to historical tendencies i think was a big part of it and there have been a, a bunch of responses including that one column i alluded to earlier about how you are impairing the the jeopardy spectator experience which has been a, a criticism that a lot of people have lodged against sabermetrics and maybe it's made baseball a less entertaining sport and i think a lot of people are watching jeopardy just because you are doing so well which kind of goes against that argument i guess but do you see that as a, a genuine concern in baseball or in Jeopardy as you were dominating at the moment? Because it, it does seem that in football, for instance, in basketball, there are a lot of ways in which the optimal way to play is also the most entertaining way to play for spectators. And that probably is not the case in baseball. And I, I wonder whether you think it's the case in Jeopardy. Well, I know that Jeopardy's ratings have been going up lately, so I don't think they're complaining on their end. But of course, you know, they're welcome to change the rules of the game if they think it's impairing the viewer experience. Experience. I have to think that the few people who are writing hit pieces represent a minority of the people out there. But, you know, my goal is not to get 100% approval rating. So it's not uh, my problem. You can pull the veil back a little bit for us maybe on the Jeopardy filming experience. I don't know how much interaction you have with your fellow contestants prior to filming or even after, but I think one of the things that has been striking about watching you is just how uh, unsettled some of your, your fellow contestants have been uh, watching you employ the strategies that you have. Have you had any opportunity to talk to any of them before or after and sort of gauge their reaction to this? Or are you um, sort of isolated pregame so that there's not a lot of mingling you're encouraged to chat with the other contestants in the green room beforehand. And, you know, I like to think that I was always cordial with them. Everyone was certainly very cordial with me, which I appreciated. You know, no one was trying any mind games or anything like that. I would not say that my strategy was designed to intimidate anyone, but I could see how people would find it intimidating just looking at the scores I was racking up. 
Do you think that, you know, baseball had its sort of money ball moment where there was a team out ahead on some of this stuff and then everyone caught up? Do you anticipate that future Jeopardy contestants are going to try to mimic this strategy, become the Red Sox of Jeopardy with with money and a, a good sabermetric department? Well, I would be excited to see that direction just because I, as a fan, like when the contestants are betting big and chasing the big paydays. I can't say that everyone's going to have the same temperament I have because even if it's the mathematically correct play to bet $10,000 on a daily double, not everyone's going to be able to do that and be able to answer a trivia question without it hanging in the back of their mind. Oh, there's so much riding on this. I think I would be happier overall to see future contestants go in a similar direction. I would feel kind of like a pioneer in that field. Yeah, what do you think prevented previous contestants from doing what you're doing now? I know that you've spoken about how maybe your gambling background has made you more comfortable with wagering large amounts of money, but just the strategies that you're pursuing and the clues that you're choosing, how much is that based on data analysis that you've done of previous Jeopardy games? And is that one reason why you're able to do this, that that previous people haven't done it? Or is there like an unwritten rules aspect to it where (laughs) you're supposed to play a certain way and people aren't willing to go against that? I think there's a couple things at play there. First of all, as I said, you know, I'm just much more comfortable with winning and losing money than the average contestant is ever going to be based on my background. You know, maybe if someone's a bond trader in New York or something that that would also roll off their back. But also, um, I read a book once that I can't remember the name of it, but they divided the world into groups they called maximizers and satisficers. And the, the satisficer is happy with good enough. You know, this describes my wife. She doesn't want to search 20 different websites to find the best deal at her hotel or anything you know she finds one that's good enough and she moves on with her life and i think that satisfactions are supposed to be much happier but i'm definitely a maximizer i knew i had one shot at jeopardy and i was not about to screw it up you know i wanted to do everything uh as well as i could have and leave it all out there and i am not sure how many people are really that interested in uh, making sure that their one Jeopardy shot doesn't go to waste. I wanted to ask you about the relationship between skill and luck in Jeopardy because, of course, you have a certain strategy, but you don't know what the clues are going to be beforehand. So there is some chance involved here. How much would you put it as skill versus luck? How does that compare to other sports and and to baseball? Mm, That's a good question. I don't – well – I would definitely say that uh, an underdog in a baseball or hockey game has a better chance of pulling off an upset than they would on Jeopardy. I might compare it more to an NBA where, you know, if the Warriors are playing, say, the Suns, there's pretty unlikely the Suns are going to win, but there is, uh, you know, the opportunity out there. It's not, it's never going to be more than like 95% or something like that. But yeah, there's, I think, more luck than many viewers realize. You know, a lot of people talk about, oh, so James is uh, playing a certain way. He was definitely going to go on this winning streak. But if you look at the, the first couple of games, you know, there are definite turning points. If I didn't uncover one out of three daily doubles in my second game, I would have lost that one. And nobody would know my name now. And yeah, there's just lots of uh, things like that that pop up in the game. I think that everyone's trying to speculate on how I'm going to lose eventually. But, you know, sometimes luck just gets you or maybe skill does. Who knows? Just to touch on that skill a little bit further, I think everyone is, um, you know, everyone who plays bar trivia is looking for tips that are perhaps in a lower stakes environment, but certainly tips on how to accumulate knowledge like this. How have you gone about sort of assembling this great database of trivia knowledge that you have? So, of course, it depends on the venue uh, that you're doing your trivia knowledge for. But for Jeopardy, they test breadth of knowledge more than depth. And I found it very helpful to go to the children's section of the library, look for books that introduce you to a subject, give you basic facts about it. And, you know, often I would delve into a second or third children's book, but that was like the right level for me. It engaged me. It didn't uh, bore me to read a book full of pictures and infographics and things like that. And it gave me enough knowledge about every subject that I felt comfortable, you know, filling in the gaps with other sources and going in knowing I had, uh, there was no subject I didn't know anything about, except there was a Monty Python quotes category last week that when I was, uh, yeah, just SOL on. <laughs> <laughs> are there any others that you're, you don't have to reveal this weakness if you don't want to, but are there any other categories that you're generally sort of dreading? There was a ballet category a couple of weeks back that I did not do so well on, but I still felt comfortable. Uh, you know, I think I, three clues had been revealed and I didn't know any of them, but the fourth clue was a daily double and I still bet 15,000 on it because I figured I had to be a favorite to get it right. And I, I did. So <laughs> how do you prepare for baseball trivia specifically? Oh, I don't know that I've been to a baseball-specific trivia night in some time. Goodness, <laughs> I think I know more about I think I know more about historical baseball than I do the past couple of years. So maybe uh-huh. I would 
do a quick refresher on uh, things that have happened recently. I see, because there's there's so much baseball knowledge out there that you could have a clue come along that even if you're a big baseball fan might just be beyond your your expertise. But you haven't kind of sat down and tried to memorize baseball reference or anything. It's been a while. Um, when I was a kid, I definitely memorized everyone's career home run totals. But now, you know, I'm more interested in memorizing their career war, and that doesn't come up a lot in uh, <laughs> trivia. Yeah, changes all the time, which would yeah. make a, an awkward oh, question. Yeah. <laughs> Waiting for the sabermetric revolution to hit uh, trivia categories too. I remember there was a. Uh, I went to just a general bar trivia one night, and they the tiebreaker question. You know, they try to get some big number that nobody can get right and see who can guess closest to it. And they asked me how many uh, how many strikeouts Nolan Ryan had in his career, and I was just like, oh, I wrote down the exact number. The other team never had a chance. <laughs> oh, man. I pity anyone who just shows up to bar trivia night and. <laughs> James Holtzauer happens to be there. That's unfortunate. You know, Might be the ultimate ringer. That I uh, meet him for a trivia night in Seattle sometime, and I figure like if anyone else comes into the bar and sees me and Ken sitting together, they're just going to walk out. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're too well known to get away with that. Now you'll have to wear a mask or something. Yeah. Were there any? I know that you uh, you told Mark you grew up reading Bill James and and were influenced by him. Were there any writers or any particular research or, or studies either then or even recently advances in baseball that have really caught your eye? Well, I guess I I would owe a debt to Boris McCracken and his dips uh, research because that was I think the big gap between my understanding and the bookies' understanding when I was just getting started in gambling. They really took a long time to. Uh, get in touch with the idea that most of the balls in play is luck. There's only a little bit of pitcher skill to it. Clay Davenport, I think, uh, brought me to the, brought attention to the idea that you could use math to simulate the rest of the baseball season. They have these things called futures markets where every day you can place a bet on which team is going to win the World Series. And often uh, the odds shift in ways that the bookie's not looking for. When a team goes on a winning streak, they, they don't really know how to adjust it that well. And I think Clay's work kind of inspired me to make my own simulations that use a similar method, and that was definitely a profitable approach. Can add your projections to to Fangraphs to round out our collection. (laughs) I'm curious. I know that you must be very busy both preparing for Jeopardy and filming because it sounds like the the filming schedule is quite arduous. But how how much time have you actually had to watch baseball this year? And uh, I know that you you said you grew up a Cubs fan. Are you are you following your Cubbies with great interest, or has Jeopardy sort of taken over? I'm following from a distance, but yeah, things are very busy here. You know, normally in my normal life, I would have time for my family and then a little bit of sports at the end. But now it's I have time for my family in jeopardy, and maybe I can watch uh, 20 minutes of baseball highlights if I'm lucky. I saw one of the analyses, maybe at 5:38, about how the distribution of daily doubles on the board. You know, they tend to be on certain squares and not on others. And I wonder how much of that you're factoring into your choices and whether you know why there is such an unequal distribution. Well, you know, I don't want to speculate on why the producers do the things the way they do, but they seem to have had a tendency to include Daily Double. I mean, Daily Double is never in the top row uh, of the board. So that's, you know, if you're hunting for the Daily Double, you're just never correct to pick up there. Um, As far as the other rows, it does seem to be somewhat random, but there are some that come up more than others. I think that the 538 analysis might have included the columns too, but I think that might be uh, a bit too far. I, I don't I don't know what the producer is doing when they uh, stick the daily double where they do, but I don't think that where the column is into consideration. You know, so for those of you who don't uh, watch Jeopardy a lot, the difficulty of the clues goes up as the dollar value goes up, and I think that they they don't want to put the daily double in the first top row first of all because people usually play the category top down and they want to give the audience at home and the players a feel for the category before they start having the daily double, but also. I think they don't want to make it too easy, a gimme question. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to think that they won't switch up the rules on you in the middle of your run here. But if uh, after your run concludes someday, if it ever does, and they decide that, uh, well, this was fun, but maybe we want to prevent another James Holtzauer from earning all our money and blowing our budget completely, how would you stop you? How would you stop a, a future version of yourself on the show? That's a good question. I don't, uh, I mean, the producers are free to do whatever they want, of course. Uh, you know, and I'm not going to speculate on why they would want to stop the next James, but uh, I guess the easiest thing to do would just be to make the daily doubles harder or 
<laughs> I don't know if they made Final Jeopardy harder. That would be uh, something. But you know, you don't, you can't ruin the viewer experience by making Final Jeopardy something they're never going to get. I mean, I'm, I'm picking up an extra twenty five thousand an episode or something just from that final bet where the game is already a runaway, and I'm, we're just seeing what my final score is. Right. Yeah. When you're looking at sort of the, I guess the actual baseball version of of what you're doing, uh, does 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 the shift ruin your viewer experience as a baseball fan, not as someone who's analyzing the game necessarily or thinking about how to uh, maximize winnings on Jeopardy, but do sort of advanced saber concepts as they are manifesting themselves on the field? How, how do you end up feeling about those just as a fan watching baseball? We're talking about like infield shifting. I don't care about infield shifting. I do think it's a worse viewer experience when there's more strikeouts and more home runs and fewer balls in play. And it would be interesting to see them tinker with the rules a little bit to try and bring that balance a little back down. Um, but, you know, I certainly have no problem with the teams trying to win if they uh, feel that more strikeouts and more home runs gives them the edge. Then, you know, I think that they should be doing everything they can to get the wins, to get the fans in the seats and sell their merchandise. You know, that is their goal. Mm-hmm. So even the even the great Jeopardy champion has an aesthetic preference for baseball that isn't quite a saber extreme. It's good to know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I, I know I've seen you talk a, a bit here and there about the advantage of just having been on the show before, the incumbent advantage and the pressure that maybe you don't experience as much. Did you find the first time you were on, did you feel that pressure or did you just have your strategy down so cold that the moment didn't phase you? Well, you know, I'd like to think that I went in less nervous than my opponents, shall we say, but the nerves were still there. And, you know, I know that you, you've, uh, well, I don't know if you personally have researched this, but research has shown that pinch hitters have a penalty when they're coming into the game cold. Right. You know, I, I mean, I kind of liken it to if one team gets to take five rounds of batting practice and the other gets one, you know, who's going to be more warmed up for the game? Uh, if I'm the defending champ, having been there three times, I've gotten to time the buzzer already. I've gotten a, a feel for standing around at the podium getting comfortable in my surroundings and the challengers don't have that. So it's not at all a surprise that they would be uh, struggling to come out the gate. And when you have just kind of wiped away the other competitors, are they generally pretty gracious about that? Or are are there any <laughs> bad sports, ungracious losers there? No one has ever refused to shake my hand. Um, I would say that there was a game on Monday, uh, let's see, it would be the April the 29th, I think, where the, the challenger had the highest second place score in, in history. And even he, you know, who really in any other universe would have won seven episodes of his own and Jeopardy shook my hand and was seemed really happy to have had the thrill of getting to play on the big stage. So I think that, you know, at least outwardly, everyone is projecting that they had a great time and uh, they were happy to be there. And I'm really glad for that. How far in advance do you guys tape the show? Uh, so they do um, a taping schedule of 10 episodes a week. There's five episodes one day, then five episodes the next. And typically what they'll do is do two weeks on, one week off. So okay. these episodes have all been in the can since February. Got it. If you were to work in baseball, I wonder whether you think that there's uh, some untapped territory that you would be able to help a team mine because you'd think at this point there wouldn't be that much more in baseball that you could do. The game's been around for so long. We've seen the sabermetric revolution proceed, but Jeopardy's been around for a really long time too, and the data has been out there for quite some time, and yet you are kind of reinventing the game right now. So do you think that that opportunity is even still possible in baseball? I can see what you're saying. It's kind of ironic. You know, I would have probably the most to contribute to a baseball team, but there's the least to gain from hiring a new consultant there, I guess I could see. I really think uh, an NFL team could definitely benefit more from uh, a math guy telling them, hey, it's only fourth and three. It's really a lot better for you to go for it here. Or maybe, uh, you know, burgeoning field of stats and say hockey, there's lots of untapped material there, but I'm not sure they have the data to uh, find it yet. Mm-hmm. What if you were able to fix fourth down decision making in football? Whatever animus, silly as it is, has has been generated by your strategy on Jeopardy would be wiped away. I'm sure. Yeah. They, uh, well, I don't know. I think I, <laughs> I would uh, get blamed for a lot of times when that goes awry. But yeah, you know, I guess okay. that is I the can, way. <laughs> I, can, I can take it. <laughs> that's right. And how much of the analysis of your own performance have you consumed? Because I always think like if I were a baseball player, I'd be reading all of the articles about me and it would probably get in my head. I wonder whether you are reading all of the statistical analyses of your own performance and whether you've learned anything about yourself from that. 
Um, I would not say I've learned a terrible lot. You know, there's a couple of, I guess you could call them, Jeopardy sabermetric sites out there that are uh, trying to compile statistics. There's one especially there running a comparison between me and Ken Jennings' stats. And uh, the stats geek in me is kind of interested in this just from that perspective. But, uh, you know, it's not an editorial site, so the, the opinions are mostly kept out of it. Um, there's also a site called the Jeopardy Archive where they track the stats from every season. And I <laughs> have taken kind of a delight in watching the uh, – they have the standard deviation of winning scores for each season. And I think this year it's gone up from like 8,000 to 22,000 already. So <laughs> I'm kind of delighted at seeing that uh, – change by the day <laughs> jeopardy graphs we ought to get in on that <laughs> <laughs> are there any other game shows out there that you would like to apply your talents to oh so uh in 2014 i was on this show called the chase which i really like because there's a, a villainous british trivia expert on the show who's literally trying to chase you down from behind um <laughs> and I, I love the idea of a uh, hero and a villain character duking it out on the set so uh, if they ever want to reboot that show and make me the chaser, I would definitely have to listen to that offer. <laughs> yeah, I guess there maybe I don't know if there are that many kind of analytically oriented game shows or or shows where you could use numbers to make a, a similar sort of impact. Yeah, for the most part, uh, I mean, I guess they could hire me as a consultant on uh, risk management or something like that. But uh, for <laughs> the most part, you know, game shows have a fairly straightforward format. You know, Jeopardy is honestly pretty open ended in that regard. There are different ways to approach it, as we've seen, and you know, some I think work better than others. Yeah, right. That's right. You could be like a white hat hacker or something who gets hired <laughs> as a, a security <laughs> consultant just to prevent other people from winning too much at game shows. But all right. Well, we will let you go. I, I wonder, is there anything that you are particularly enjoying or paying attention to or hoping to see this baseball season? Um, you know, I'm really hoping for Shohei Otani to come back strong. I know he's yes. not pitching for this year, but he is my favorite player in the league, uh, partially because he's Japanese and partially because he's just doing such amazing things that we haven't seen in my lifetime. So mm -hmm. uh, that would be the big one, I think. Yeah. He's the James Holtzauer of baseball, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> You're the Otani of Jeopardy. All right. Well, I like that. I'm glad that we could have you on and I would wish you luck. I don't know if you actually need luck or how much luck even comes into play at this point, but uh, I hope that your run continues and that not too many people are mad at you and maybe you will open some minds about uh, the ways that we can use this sort of information in other areas of life. And I'll be curious to see where you pop up next and what you are able to parlay this into because there's no telling what sort of opportunities might arise. You'll have to think about who should play you in the uh, Jeopardy Moneyball movie. Yeah, this, uh, it's tricky. You know, there's not a lot of half Asian celebrities out there to pick from. Uh, they could reverse age Keanu Reeves, maybe, or something like that. <laughs> Perfect. All right. Well, you can find James on Twitter at James underscore Holtower, and you can find him on Jeopardy every weeknight, taking Jeopardy for all it's worth. Thanks, James. Good luck. Right. Thank you for having me, Ben and Meg. All right, that will do it for today and for this week. And if you are interested in pre-ordering my book, The MVP Machine, send some proof of your pre-order to Machine at gmail.com. Just a confirmation email or a screenshot or a photo of a receipt, whatever you have, and that will qualify you for some pre-order goodies. We're going to be sending out a bonus chapter and a conversation about the book between me and Travis and some other additional documents when the book comes out. So your pre-orders help us. They can also help you. You can also support this podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild the following five listeners already have jason bersani ronak nair paul formicelli david egan and robbie sampson thanks to all of you a few other things after we spoke to james his latest episode and victory aired on friday night he earned his 22nd straight victory he won another eighty-two thousand three hundred eighty-one dollars which brings his total to one million six hundred ninety-one thousand and eight dollars not too shabby his next episode doesn't air until may 20th so he will be undefeated at least until then but one would think quite a bit longer he now has i think nine of the top 10 single game winnings in jeopardy it's almost how like baseball Savant used to have the Chapman filter where you'd look at the fastest fastballs ever thrown and you'd just have to press the button to remove all the Aroldis Chapman ones because that was the entire top of the leaderboard. Kind of need a Holtzhauer filter for the single day Jeopardy winnings. I think my favorite part of that interview was when I asked him how the show could stop someone like him and he kind of couldn't come up with an answer because he is just that unstoppable. Speaking of unstoppable, Tyler Glasnow won again on Friday. He is now 6-0 by old school one-loss
loss record, he threw seven more shutout innings. Granted, it was against the Orioles, so you know, at least the Rays only hit one home run off Orioles pitching, so that's something. Also, a few of you have emailed us or tweeted at us in response to Sam's stat blast on the previous episode. That was about the last walk-off by a pitcher, which Sam said was Scott Proctor. As some of you have pointed out, there have been more recent walk-offs by pitchers. Madison Bumgarner had a walk-off hit last year. John Lester had a walk-off bunt in 2016. Those didn't show up in Sam's query because those pitchers were both pinch hitters at the time, so they were not listed as pitchers. But yes, if you include pinch hitters, it has happened. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild, and you can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Please keep your questions and comments for me and Sam and Meg coming via email at podcast at fangrass.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you're a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. We hope you have a wonderful weekend, and we will be back to talk to you early next week. That was fun. Thanks. I yeah. appreciate it. No, it was great. You know, I was, uh, all these national media outlets are talking to me, but I get this email from Fandrafts. I'm like, hey, I read Fandrafts. This, uh, <laughs> this is actually exciting. So oh. thank, you, thank you for having me. Hello and welcome to Effectively what? Nope. See? <laughs> <laughs> Dang it. Podcast okay. intro yips. <laughs> no, you can't call it that because then it's going to be worse. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>